Well, good morning, everybody, and um, let us carry on because we're on chapter 14. We've moved through chapter 13. I've resolved my difficulties with, uh, what are they called? eBay, or at least the the seller with whom I was having trouble, um, has refunded my money, which is a marvellous thing, and I can sleep easy. I can sleep easy this night, and um, yeah, so that's great, and um, there we are, there we have it, and um, chapter 14, it's quite a nice day out there, I should really be doing some tidying up in the garden, our garden is like, um, well, it's like a sort of jungle, um, it's like I imagine um, the Garden of Eden was, um, following, you know, uh, Adam and Eve's expulsion, which, of course, did happen. There was a garden somewhere, probably in Africa. Um, lots of plants. They tended it every day, didn't they, until the naughty snake came along. And when the naughty snake came along, I think God banished them. And they had to wander about east of Eden, um, maybe, or they they were the land of Nod or the land of Nob or the land of somewhere. Anyway, they were cast out from their well-tended garden, you know, and um, I imagine our garden is much like the Garden of Eden would look had it been um, abandoned for about uh, two years. It's just grown like Topsy, and, uh, yeah, it's full of, um, full of annoying plants which just keep going upwards, round things, you know, um, cracking various bits of um, paving and odd bits of concrete and uh, but it's quite nice to sit in um, but it is and it is presumably producing a nice bit of um, it takes in the um, carbon dioxide doesn't it and throw out oxygen I think it does do that so it's so it's making some um, making some nice gas <laughs> which is good which is not to be not to be sniffed at but it's, it's a state, and I should be out there. But instead, I'm reading Chapter 14 of The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 14, those were the real conquests. We had imagined that our pursuers, the ape-men, those blooming ape-men, knew nothing of our brushwood hiding place. But we were soon to find out our mistake. Of course you were. There was no sound in the woods. Not a leaf moved upon the trees, and all was peace around us. But we should have been warned by our first experience how cunningly and how patiently these creatures can watch and wait until their chance comes. Whatever fate may be mine through life, I am very sure that I shall never be nearer death than I was that morning. But I will tell you the thing in its due order. So see you in uh, 50 minutes when I can have a cup of coffee and um yeah maybe maybe think about going out with my pruning my secateurs and my uh, my shears it needs shears it needs some um, a flamethrower it needs agent orange dropped from a bell corporation chopper um in a coordinated swoop by by the military um and these days, that's not out of the question, is it? It could just happen randomly, you know. 
sprayed with Agent Orange for one of his tweets. We all awoke exhausted after the terrific emotions and scanty food of yesterday. Yes, I find that's not a good combination, terrific emotions and scanty food. I prefer terrific food and scanty emotions, if given the choice. But I think listeners probably have guessed that by now. Scanty emotions, terrific food, I thank you, and a nice glass of red wine. Possibly a Rioja, if um, if anyone is, uh, you know popping out of doors in Spain at the moment to be clubbed by Spanish paramilitary policemen, then they'll be tending the vines. If not, we're in for a we're in for a bumpy ride, wine wise. We're in for a bumpy ride, wine wise. That's not a an expression I hope ever to have to try to get through again. We're in for a bumpy ride, wine wise. Summerlee was still so weak that it was an effort for him to stand. But the old man was full of a sort of surly courage, which would never admit defeat. A council was held, and it was agreed that we should wait quietly for an hour or two where we were, have our much-needed breakfast, and then make our way across the plateau and round the central lake to the caves, where my observations had shown that the Indians lived. Oh yes, the Indians, this sort of squat, red, bandy-legged Indians, not the chums of the ape-men. Indeed, yes, hadn't a couple of Indians turned up and offered to carry their stuff around the plateau um, just to be close to people who'd already been captured and uh, not doing very well. We relied upon the fact that we could count upon the good word of those whom we had rescued to ensure a warm welcome from their fellows. Yes, that's true. Then, with our mission accomplished and possessing a fuller knowledge of the secrets of Maple White Land or Oak Furniture Village, we should turn our whole thoughts to the vital problem of our escape and return. Even Challenger was ready to admit that we should then have done all for which we had come, and that our first duty from that time onwards was to carry back to civilization the amazing discoveries we had made. Brilliant. We were able now to take a more leisurely view of the Indians whom we had rescued. Brilliant. They were small men, wiry, active. I keep saying brilliant. It's annoying. And well-built, with lank black hair tied up in a bunch behind their heads, with a leathern thong. There's a great word, leathern, isn't it? And and leathern also were their loincloths. Perhaps it's pterodactyl leathern, a beautiful, soft Soft pouch made from the wing skin. <laughs> yes, yes, the old, um, the old leathern worker up in the caves. So we've got some lovely soft leathers. The uh, pterodactyl wing, wing, wing skin pouch, sir. You'll find it snug, but uh, it will give with wear. Ugh. The lobes of their ears hanging ragged and bloody showed that they had been pierced for some ornaments which their captors had torn out. Oh dear. Their speech, though unintelligible to us, was fluent among themselves. And as they pointed, that's often the way, and as they pointed to each other and uttered the word Akala many times over, we gathered that this was the name of the nation. Occasionally, with faces which were convulsed with fear and hatred, they shook their clenched hands at the woods round and cried, Doda, Doda. Sorry, I am giving them a slightly uh, 
Jules Verne 1950s Technicolor film. Um, anthropological interpretation of them. Uh, that took a long time to get out. Uh, cried Doda, Doda, which was surely their term for their enemies. So Akala, Doda, Doda. What do you make of them, challenger? asked Lord John. One thing is very clear to me, and that is that the little chap with the front of his head shaved... With <laughs> yes, even Lord John isn't that stupid. One thing is very clear to me, and that is that the little chap with the front of his head shaved is a chief among them. How did he work that out? It was indeed evident that this man stood apart from the others, and that they never ventured to address him without every sign of deep respect. He seemed to be the youngest of them all, and yet so proud and high was his spirit that, upon Challenger laying his great hand upon his head, he started like a spurred horse, and with a quick flash of his dark eyes, moved further away from the professor. Well, you never quite know the professor's intentions. Then, placing his hand upon his breast and holding himself with great dignity, he uttered the word Maritas several times. Akala, Doda Doda, Maritas. We're building, we're building the Belitz language school of the Akala. The professor, unabashed, seized the nearest Indian by the shoulder and proceeded to lecture upon him as if he were a potted specimen in a classroom. "'These type of people,' said he in his sonorous fashion, "'whether judged by cranial capacity, facial angle, or any other test, facial angle, "'cannot be regarded as a low one. "'On the contrary, we must place it as considerably higher in the scale "'than many South American tribes which I can mention.' bit rude. On no possible facial angle, on no possible supposition, can we explain the evolution of such a race in this place. For that matter, so great a gap separates these ape-men from the primitive animals which have survived upon this plateau, that it is inadmissible to think that they could have developed where we find them. "'Then where the deuce did they drop from?' asked Lord John. The question which will no doubt be eagerly discussed in every scientific society in Europe and America, the professor answered. My own reading of the situation for what it is worth. He inflated his chest enormously and looked insolently around him at the words. Is that evolution has advanced under the peculiar conditions of this country up to the vertebrate stage? the old types surviving and living on in company with the newer ones. Thus we find such modern creatures as the tapir, an animal with quite a respectable length of pedigree, the great deer and the anteater, in the companionship of reptilian forms of Jurassic type. So much is clear. Jurassic, you see, how, how um, closely the linkage is between Jurassic Park and Michael Crichton and... Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So much is clear. And now come the ape-men and the Indian. What is the scientific mind to think of their presence? I can only account for it by an invasion from outside. It is probable that there existed an anthropoid ape in South America who in past ages found his way to this place, and that he developed into the creatures we have seen, some of which—here he looked hard at me— don't know why, were of an appearance and shape which, if it had been accompanied by corresponding intelligence, would, I do not hesitate to say, have reflected credit upon any living race. As to the Indians, 
I cannot doubt that they are more recent immigrants from below. Under the stress of famine or of conquest, they have made their way up here. Faced by ferocious creatures which they had never before seen, they took refuge in the caves which our young friend has described. But they have no doubt had a bitter fight to hold their own against wild beasts and especially against the ape-men who would regard them as intruders and wage a merciless war upon them with a cunning which the larger beasts would lack, hence the fact that their numbers appear to be limited. Well, gentlemen, have I read you the riddle aright? Here's another one. Well, gentlemen, have I read you the riddle aright? Or is there any point which you would query? Professor Summerley for once was too depressed to argue— though he shook his head violently as a token of general disagreement, then buried his head into a three-pack of chocolate walnut whips. Lord John merely scratched his scanty locks with the remark that he couldn't put up a fight as he wasn't in the same weight or class. For my own part, I performed my usual role of bringing things down to a strictly prosaic and practical level by the remark that one of the Indians was missing. "'He has gone to fetch some water,' said Lord Roxton. "'We fitted him up with an empty beef-tin, and he is off.' "'To the old camp?' I asked. "'No, to the brook. It's among the trees there. "'It can't be more than a couple of hundred yards, "'but the beggar is certainly taking his time. "'I'll go and look for him,' said I. "'I picked up my rifle and strolled in the direction of the brook, "'leaving my friends to lay out the scanty breakfast. Four rashers of bacon, unsmoked, two eggs.' mushrooms, hash-browns, tomatoes from a tin, a slice of black pudding, a couple of Lincolnshire sausages, lightly fried, some baked beans, and uh, some fried bread. As I say, a scanty breakfast, followed by some fresh Florida orange juice, and um, tomato juice and apple juice for those who wish it, and, of course, to start off with a kedgeri or some uh, mueslis or cereals, followed by toast with uh, Frank Cooper's Oxford marmalade of various types and cuts, thick cut, medium cut, thin cut. Um, when did I last enjoy a nice uh, bit of marmalade? Twas a long time ago, I fear. It may seem to you rash that even for so short a distance I should quit the, quit the shelter of our friendly thicket. That's no way to talk about Professor Summerley. But you will remember that we were many miles from Ape Town. Ape Town, so good they named it once, that so far as we knew the creatures had not discovered our retreat, and that in any case with a rifle in my hands I had no fear of them. I had not yet learned their cunning or their strength. Oh dear, I fear something bad is about to happen. I could hear the murmur of our brook somewhere ahead of me, there was a tangle of trees and brushwood between me and it. I was making my way through this at a point which was just out of sight of my companions when, under one of the trees, I noticed something red huddled among the bushes. As I approached it, I was shocked to see that it was the dead body of the missing Indian. He lay upon his side, his limbs drawn up, and his head screwed round at a most unnatural angle, so that he seemed to be looking straight over his own shoulder. Ah, yes, the old, the old twist and um, snap 
beloved in um, the Second World War war movies when you creep up behind a, a German uh, sentry with his um, old piss-pot helmet on, get his arm round his neck, probably Lee Marvin or Charles Bronson, and give him a good old 120-degree twist. Never fails to work. Well, in movies, in a Sam Peckinpah movie or something. Or a Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. I gave a cry to warn my friends that something was amiss, and running forwards I stooped over the body. Surely my guardian angel was very near me then, for some instinct of fear, or it may have been some faint rustle of leaves, made me glance upwards. Out of the thick green foliage, which hung low over my head, two long muscular arms covered with reddish hair were slowly descending. Orangotang. Sorry, Another instant and the great stealthy hands would have been round my throat. I sprang backwards, but quick as I was, those hands were quicker still. Through my sudden spring they missed a fatal grip, but one of them caught the back of my neck and the other one my face. Oh, I know what they're up to. I threw my hands up to protect my throat, and the next moment the huge paw had slid down my face and closed over them. I was lifted lightly from the ground, and I felt an intolerable pressure, forcing my head back and back until the strain upon the cervical spine was more than I could bear. My senses swam, but I still tore at the hand and forced it out from my chin. Looking up, I saw a frightful face with cold, inexorable, light-blue eyes looking down into mine. Light-blue eyes. There was something hypnotic in those terrible eyes. I could struggle no longer. As the creature felt me grow limp in his grasp, two white canines gleamed for a moment at each side of the vile mouth, and the grip tightened still more upon my chin, forcing it always upwards and back. A thin, oval-tinted mist formed before my eyes, and little silvery bells tinkled in my ears. Dull, dully, dully and far off, it's easier to see than say, dully and far off I heard the crack of a rifle and was feebly aware of the shock as I was dropped to the earth where I lay without sense or motion. That's me every night, about 8pm. I awoke to find myself on my back upon the grass in our lair within the thicket. Oh, OK. I thought he was going to wake up in, a, in an ape, in an ape-stilted house, on those houses on stilts. Someone had brought the water from the brook, and Lord John was sprinkling my head with it while Challenger and Summerlee were propping me up with concern in their faces. For a moment I had a glimpse of the human spirits behind their scientific masks. It was really shock rather than injury which had prostrated me, and in half an hour, in spite of aching head and stiff neck, well, I'm not surprised, I was sitting up and ready for anything. I started with a, with a bag of monster munch, pickled onion flavour, to give me that zip and zing that I needed to keep going forward in the expedition. Monster Munch, what a weird what a weird snack item that is. Has anyone here ever had Monster Munch? Look it up if you haven't. There'll be a test at the end of this series. But you've had the escape of your life, young fellow, my lad, said Lord Roxton, when I heard your cry and ran forward and saw your head twisted half off and your 
Stowasses kicking in the air. Your stowasses kicking in the air. I've no idea what that is. And saw your head twisted half off and your stowasses kicking in the air. I thought we were one short. Maybe it's one of his um, boer <laughs> expressions. You've got to wear your stowasses when you go out on the veldt because there are lots of nasty creatures which might try to eat you, like a scorpion, a nasty big snake, or maybe even... Um, I missed the beast in my flurry, but he dropped you all right and was off like a streak. By George, I wish I had fifty men with rifles. I'd clear out the whole infernal gang of them and leave this country a bit cleaner than we found it. Sorry, something happening there with my, um, with my, um, what would you call it? With my um, monitor. If you don't keep moving the mouse, it sort of disappears and I should change the settings really. But it all adds to the fun, the hybrid fun of um, I digress or don't forget it's also available as a podcast and that will ultimately be its only resting place. It is available on all the podcast platforms and it's called Classic Breakdown. But it's also on YouTube where I've got some marvellous subscribers who do subscribe to this utter tripe. And um, thanks for your comments, of course. It's always nice to get those. And, um, yeah, um, we don't have many subscribers. Not like um, the Magpie Audio Sherlock Holmes stories, which just reached 60,000 subscribers. 60K. So that's very good. And so if you want to hear something slightly more... Um, professional, only slightly, I hasten to add, but it is a straight read in the traditional sense of straight read. Um, and um, yes, if you wish to listen to any of the uh, Sherlock Holmes canon, with the exception of a couple of um, stories from the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, you could find them on Sherlock Holmes Stories Magpie Audio is the bizarre name of the channel. And um, there we are. But this is called Classic Breakdown, and we're currently reading... What are we currently reading? The the Lost World with um, by Arthur Conan Doyle. And um, yes, I'm carrying on. I am carrying on. Where did we get to? It was clear now that the ape men had in some way marked us down and that we were watched on every side. We had not so much to fear from them during the day, but they would be very likely to rush us by night, so the sooner we got away from their neighbourhood, the better. Oh, yeah, their neighbourhood. Just go a few, few, a few blocks down, a few blocks down, like in that marvellous film Warriors, um, when they have to flee certain neighbourhoods across town. I don't know what town Warriors is set in New York, I suppose. On three sides of us was Absolute Forest, and there we might find ourselves in an ambush. But on the fourth side, that which sloped down in the direction of the lake, there was only low scrub with scattered trees and occasional open glades. It was, in fact, the route which I had myself taken in my solitary journey, and it led us straight for the Indian caves. This, then, must for every reason be our road. Yeah, I'll, I think I'll go into that really thick um, thick forest there, absolute forest, um, because I think this, you know, this obvious road towards the Indians and, you know, it's really easy walking. Uh, yeah, yeah, this for every reason must be our road. There's nice nice street furniture as well. And, um, you know, one great regret we had, and that was to leave our old camp behind us. 
I did that. Not only for the sake of the stores, which remained there, but even more because we were losing touch with Zambo, our link with the outside world. However, we had a fair supply of cartridges and all our guns, so that for a time at least we could look after ourselves, and we hoped soon to have a chance of returning and restoring our communications with our Negro. Hmm. He had faithfully promised to stay where he was, and we had not a doubt that he would be as good as his word. It was in the early afternoon that we started upon our journey. The young chief walked at our head as our guide, but refused indignantly, indignantly to carry any burden. I say, chief, would you uh, carry these, uh, this four-pack of crossed Blackwell baked beans? No. Well, you'd be doing us a favour, and you are, after all, one of the Indians, these squat red people. Just, just carry these beans. No. I'm the chief of these people. I'm not carrying your beans. I'm chief of the Akala. Do I remember that correctly? Um, well, what about carrying this, uh, this packet of uh, pork chipolatas? Tesco's finest. No, I'm not carrying anything. Very well. Very well, I'll carry them myself. But you are forgetting my position. I went to Keyes College, Cambridge. Or is it Oxford? Do I care? No, I don't. <laughs> we we four white men walked in the rear with rifles loaded and ready. Behind him came the two surviving Indians with our scanty possessions upon their backs. As we started, there broke from the thick, silent woods behind us a sudden great ululation, or ululation, or ululation of the ape-men, which may have been a cheer of triumph at our departure, or a jeer of contempt at our flight. I've just been... I've just been holding this biro, and I realise it hasn't got a cap on it. I've just been writing on my left index finger inadvertently, um, which is irritating, but I've just removed it. We four white men walked in the rear with rifles loaded and ready. As we started, there broke from the thick, silent woods behind us a great ululation of the ape-men, which may have been a cheer of triumph at our departure or a jeer of contempt at our flight. And of course, we remember the ululation of the Tarzan some years later in the... Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, Tarzana, California. Does anyone live in Tarzana, California? Let me know. Looking back, we saw only the dense screen of trees, but that long-drawn yell told us how many of our enemies lurked among them. We saw no sign of pursuit, however, and soon we had got into more open country and beyond their power. Sure enough, there was a branch of Burger King on one side, and we drove through and got... Professor Summerley, a zinger burger. As I tramped along the rearmost of the four, I could not help smiling at the appearance of my three companions in front. Was this the luxurious Lord John Roxton who had sat that evening in the Albany amidst his Persian rugs and his pictures in the pink radiance of the tinted lights? Hello. And was this the imposing professor who had swelled behind the great desk in his massive study at Enmore Park? Hello. And finally, could this be the austere and prim figure which had risen before the meeting at the Zoological Institute? No three tramps that one could have met in a Surrey lane could have looked more hopeless and bedraggled. The tramp. Whatever happened to the tramp? Of the... Um, of the Surrey death squads from the county council killed them all and had them buried? Probably. We had, it is true, been only a week or so upon the top of the plateau. 
but all our spare clothing was in our camp below, and the one week had been a severe one upon us all, though least to me who had not to endure the handling of the ape-men. My three friends had lost all their hats, had all lost their hats. <laughs> yes. Oh, I've lost that lovely navy Panama, and had now bound handkerchiefs round their heads, their clothes hung in ribbons about them, and their unshaven, grimy faces were hardly to be recognised. Both Summerlee and Challenger were limping heavily, while I still dragged my feet from weakness after the shock of the morning, yes, being grabbed by that uh, big ape, you big ape, and my neck was as stiff as a board from the murderous grip that held it. We were indeed a sorry crew, and I did not wonder to see our Indian companions glance back at us occasionally, with horror and amazement on their faces. I bet they did. In the late afternoon we reached the margin of the lake, and as we emerged from the bush and saw the sheet of water stretching before us, our native friends set up a shrill cry of joy and pointed eagerly in front of them. It was indeed a wonderful sight which lay before us. Sweeping over the glassy surface was a great flotilla of canoes, coming straight for the shore upon which we stood. It's almost as if they were gifted with eyesight, isn't it? They were some miles out when we first saw them, but they shot forward with great swiftness and were soon so near that the rowers could distinguish our persons. I can distinguish your person. Instantly a thunderous shout of delight burst from them, and we saw them rise from their seats, waving their paddles and spears madly in the air. Then, bending to their work, once more they flew across the intervening water, beached their boats upon the sloping sand, and rushed up to us, prostrating themselves with loud cries of greeting before the young chief. Finally, one of them, an elderly man with a an elderly man with a necklace and bracelets of great lustrous glass beads and the skin of some beautiful mottled amber-coloured animal slung over his shoulders, ran forward and embraced most tenderly the youth whom he had saved, whom we had saved. He then looked at us and asked some questions, after which he stepped up with much dignity and embraced us also, each in turn, then, at his order, the whole tribe lay down upon the ground before us, in homage, naturally. We expected it. Personally, I felt shy and uncomfortable at this obsequious adoration, and I read the same feeling in the faces of Roxton and Summerley. But Challenger expanded like a flower in the sun. "'They may be undeveloped types,' said he, stroking his beard and looking round at them, "'but their deportment in the presence of their superiors might be a lesson to some of our more advanced Europeans. Strange how correct are the instincts of the natural man.' <laughs> He's got some funny views, hasn't he? I think they might have been, um, might have been partly superseded over the last uh, hundred years, on and off, you know. It was clear that the natives had come out upon the warpath, for every man carried his spear, a long bamboo tipped with bone, perhaps one of those ones that was left on the end of the bamboo when uh, various people had tossed themselves off the escarpment, his bow and arrows and some sort of club or stone battle-axe slung at his side. Their dark, angry glances at the woods from which we had come and the frequent repetition of the word doda made it clear enough that this was a rescue party who had set forth to save or revenge the old chief's son, Umbala. I just made Umbala up, just for the added colour. For such we gathered that the youth must be. It's actually his Uncle Eric, but um, 
They're not to know that. A council was now held by the whole tribe squatting in a circle, whilst we sat near on a slab of basalt and watched their proceedings. Two or three warriors spoke, and finally our young friend made a spirited harangue with stiff peaks, using several egg whites. Oh, a spirited harangue! My mistake! with such eloquent features and gestures that we could understand it all as clearly as if we had known his language. "'What is the use of returning?' he said. "'Sooner or later the thing must be done. Your comrades have been murdered. What if I have returned safe? Those, These others have been done to death. There is no safety for any of us. We are assembled now and ready.' Then he pointed to us. "'These strange men are our friends.' They're great fighters, and they hate the ape-men even as we do. They command, here he pointed up to heaven, the thunder and the lightning. Oh, yeah, all that um, fear of the guns and the Winchester 73, whatever it is. They command the thunder and the lightning. When shall we have such a chance again? Let us go forward and either die now or live for the future in safety. With an interest-bearing mortgage. How else shall we go back unashamed to our women? Listen, mate, we manage it over here. The little red warriors hung upon the words of the speaker, and when he had finished they burst into a roar of applause, waving their rude weapons in the air. The old chief stepped forward to us and asked us some questions, pointing at the same time to the woods. Lord John made a sight to him, made a sign to him that he would like a slice of meringue, and did they have any raspberries and double cream? whipped. Lord John made a sign to him that he should wait for an answer, and then he turned to us. "'Well, it's up to you to say what you will do. For my part, I have a score to settle,' said he, with these monkey folk. Bit rude. And if it ends by wiping them off the face of the earth, I don't see that the earth need fret about it. I'm going with our little red pals, and I mean to see them through the scrap. What do you say, young fellow?' "'Of course I will come. And you, challenger?' I will assuredly cooperate. And you, Summerley? We seem to be drifting very far from the object of this expedition, Lord John. I assure you that I little thought when I left my professional chair in London that it was for the purpose of heading a raid of savages upon a colony of anthropoid apes. To such base uses do we come, said Lord John, smiling. But we are up against it, so what's the decision? It seems a most questionable step, said Summerley, argumentative to the last. "'But if you are all going, I hardly see how I can remain behind.' "'Then it is settled,' said Lord John, and turning to the chief, he nodded and slapped his rifle. "'The old fellow clasped our hands each in turn, while his men cheered louder than ever. "'It was too late to advance that night, so the Indians settled down in a rude bivouac. "'On all sides their fires began to glimmer and smoke.' Some of them, who had disappeared into the jungle, came back presently, driving a young iguanodon before them. Good for them. Like the others, it had a daub of asphalt upon its shoulder, and it was only when we saw one of the natives step forward with the air of an owner and give his consent to the beast's slaughter that we understood at last that these great creatures were as much private property as a herd of cattle, and that these symbols which had so perplexed us were nothing more than the marks of the owner— Helpless, torpid and vegetarian, with great limbs, but a minute brain. It could be any supermodel. They could be rounded up and driven by a child. 
In a few minutes the huge beast had been cut up, and slabs of him were hanging over a dozen campfires, together with great scaly ganoid fish, which had been speared in the lake. So, in a very real sense, prehistoric surf and turf. Delicious, with a side order of triple-cooked chips. Summerlee had lain down and slept upon the sand, but we others roamed round the edge of the water, seeking to learn something more of this strange country. Twice we found pits of blue clay, such as we had already seen in the swamp of the pterodactyls. These were old volcanic vents, and for some reason excited the greatest interest in Lord John. Hmm. Takes all sorts. What attracted Challenger, on the other hand, was a bubbling, gurgling mud-geezer, where some strange gas formed great bursting bubbles upon the surface. He thrust a hollow reed into it, and cried out with delight like a schoolboy. Then he was able, on touching it with a lighted match, to cause a sharp explosion and a blue flame at the far end of the tube. Still more pleased was when— still more pleased was he when— Inverting a leathern pouch over the end of the reed, and so filling it with the gas, he was able to send it soaring up into the air. "'An inflammable gas, and one markedly lighter than the atmosphere. I should say beyond doubt that it contained a considerable proportion of free hydrogen. The resources of GEC are not yet exhausted, my young friend. I may yet show you how a great mind—' "'Moulds all nature to its use.' "'He swelled with some secret purpose, but would say no more. "'There was nothing which we could see upon the shore "'which seemed to me so wonderful as the great sheet of water before us, "'which contained so many delicious ganoid fish. "'They do sound tasty, don't they? Ganoid scampi. "'Our numbers and our noise—I do talk about food a lot, don't I? It's— um, they're going to have to take me out in a forklift at the end. Our numbers and our noise had frightened all living creatures away, and save for a few pterodactyls which soared round high above our heads while they waited for the carrion, all was still around the camp. But it was different, out upon those rose-tinted waters of the central lake. It boiled and heaved with strange life. Great slate-coloured backs and high serrated dorsal fins shot up with a fringe of silver and then rolled down into the depths again. The sandbanks far out were spotted with uncouth crawling forms, huge turtles, strange saurians or saurians, and one great flat creature, like a writhing, palpitating mat of black, greasy leather, which flopped its way slowly to the lake. What the hell is that? Here and there high serpent heads projected out of the water, cutting swiftly through it like a little collar of foam in front, and a long swirling wake behind, rising and falling in graceful swan-like undulations as they went. One wonders if that wasn't uh, the uh, blueprint for the um, forged Nessie pictures of the 1920s and 30s. Or maybe Nessie, the Loch Ness monster, is real. Who knows? Answers on a postcard, please. It was not until one of these creatures wriggled onto a sandbank within a few hundred yards of us and exposed a barrel-shaped body and huge flippers behind the long serpent neck. The challenger and Summerlee, who had joined us, broke out into their duet of wonder and admiration. Plesiosaurus, a freshwater plesiosaurus, 
cried Summerlee. "'That I should have lived to see such a sight. "'We are blessed, my dear challenger, above all zoologists, since the world began.' It was not until the night had fallen and the fires of our savage allies glowed red in the shadows that our two men of science could be dragged away from the fascinations of that primeval lake. Even in the darkness, as we lay upon the strand, we heard from time to time the snort and plunge of the huge creatures who lived therein. At earliest dawn our camp was astir, and an hour later we had started upon our memorable expedition— Often in my dreams have I thought that I might live to be a war correspondent. In what wildest one could I have conceived the nature of the campaign which it should be my lot to report? Here, then, is my first dispatch from a field of battle. I'm quite exhausted. Um, how many more pages do we have? Because, uh, quite frankly, I think we might uh, leave it there. Or shall I continue after a cup of coffee? And just do this battle, and then we'll we'll be keeping within um, we'll be keeping within our uh, uh, chapter per episode um, intentions. But uh, I have weakened so greatly that uh, I can barely have the stamina to get. Uh, anyway, we are getting through it, and um, let's have a little uh, a little break. So I'm going to fade out. Let's see if we can fade out with some cricket noises. And um, I don't know. Maybe we can. I can't hear them, of course, because they're going through a different way. But let's um, have a break and I'll see you later. Goodbye. OK, well, look, here we are. Um, I've uh, got a cup of coffee. Here it is. It's my cup, um, which was, it's got Cambridge written underneath it. It's got some ducks all round it. Very nice mug. I would be very sad were I to drop it. And, it, it you know, you get attached to a mug, don't you? And it's, uh, it's capacious. It's got some nice coffee in it. So, uh, excuse me. I do feel somewhat refreshed and I'm ready to um, do uh, the first, dis Malone's first dispatch from a field of battle. But I do have to have some lunch as well, which is just some soup. I think it might be pea soup, pea and ham soup, possibly, and uh, that'd be nice. Um, so I'm looking forward to that in about half an hour. So hopefully we can get through this and um, I can enjoy my coffee. Also got um, to remove an extractor fan from the bathroom, which is on the blink. It's an extractor fan, which is too complicated for its own good. In the old days, you had a bathroom extractor fan and it had a little bit of string or cord dangling from it. And when you'd uh, gone to the bathroom for whatever reason, there are many, um, and you would pull the string to get the extractor going. And when you had had enough of the extractor going, you would pull the string again and it would um, click the switch and the extractor fan would stop. We recently, through a wild 60 pounds at an extractor fan, which purportedly comes on when the humidity reaches a certain level and uh, stops when the humidi humidity is, is down to an acceptable level. You can adjust it, and there's also a timer. You can adjust it. Well, having adjusted it initially, 
the humidis- humidistat would um, would kick in in the middle of the night and would go on, wake the neighbours, wake everyone, wake dogs within a sort of 200-mile radius. Uh, cockerels would wake up and start to crow. The mad bagpiper would uh, get his pipes out and start to play. The moment this thing turned on, it was like a sort of Rolls-Royce Concorde engine as well, which didn't help. So this... Um, all singing, all dancing, bathroom extractor fan is having to go back. But uh, do they make them with um, with the string attached anymore? Of course they don't. You might catch the bubonic plague off the string, so it has to be automatic. It has to come on and off, you know, randomly, you know, entirely at random. So there we are. That's another little domestic chore to get involved in today. No wonder I turn to this in moments of stress and think, ah, battle with the ape men is going to be far more relaxing than wrangling um, an extractor fan out of the bathroom and things like that. Blah, blah, blah. I'm boring myself. One more sip of coffee. We'll, um, We'll stagger on. We're at about 45 minutes and 17, 18, 19 seconds, according to this. So it's a good chunk, but I have a horrible feeling we've got quite a few pages to go. So, without further ado, wagons roll. Waglands roll, as they say. Nobody says that. I just said for the first time. Um, Okay, and uh, here we are. Our numbers had been reinforced during the night by a fresh batch of natives from the caves. And we may have been four or five hundred strong when we made our advance. A fringe of scouts was thrown out in front with um, girl guides and beavers behind. And behind them, the whole force, in a solid column, made their way up the long slope of the bush country until we were near the edge of the forest. Here they spread out into a long straggling line of spearmen and bowmen. Roxton and Summerley took their position upon the right flank, while Challenger and I were on the left. It was a host of the Stone Age that we were accompanying to battle, we with the last word of the gunsmith's art from St. James's Street and the Strand. The last word of the gunsmith's art. We had not long to wait for our enemy. A wild, shrill clamour rose from the edge of the wood, and suddenly a body of ape-men rushed out with clubs and stones and made for the centre of the Indian line. It was a valiant move, but a foolish one for the great bandy-legged creatures were slow of foot, while their opponents were as active as cats. Hello. OK, yes, it was horrible to see the fierce brutes with foaming mouths and glaring eyes rushing and grasping, but forever missing their elusive enemies, while arrow after arrow buried itself in their hides. One great fellow ran past me roaring with pain, with a dozen darts sticking from his chest and ribs. In mercy, I put a bullet through his skull. Fair enough. And he fell sprawling among the aloes. Well, that would have been soothing had he not been dead. Nice bit of aloe variegata, that beautiful aloe um, salve on the skin, on his pterodactyl leathern pouch. But this was the only shot fired, for the attack had been on the centre of the line and the Indians there had needed no help of ours in repulsing it. Of all the eight men who had rushed out into the open, I do not think that one got back to cover. 
but the matter was more deadly when we came among the trees. Well, little tip from me, uh, from my Sandhurst training, don't go into the trees. Uh, it's a mistake. It's a bit like um, the charge of the Light Brigade. Don't um, ride into that narrow uh, gorge because it might be a trap. There might be um, cannons to the left of you, cannons to the right, stormed out with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well into the into the mouth of hell, whatever. For an hour or more after we entered the wood, there was a desperate struggle in which for a time we hardly held our own. Springing out from among the scrub, the ape men with huge clubs broke in upon the Indians and often felled three or four of them before they could be speared. Their frightful blows shattered everything upon which they fell. One of them knocked Summerlee's rifle to matchwood, and the next would have crushed his skull had an Indian not stabbed the beast to the heart. Other ape men in the trees above us hurled down stones and logs of wood, occasionally dropping bodily onto our ranks and fighting furiously until they were felled. Once our allies broke under the pressure, and had it not been for the execution done by our rifles, they would certainly have taken to their heels. But they were gallantly rallied by their old chief and came on with such a rush that the ape-men began in turn to give way. Summerlee was weaponless, but I was emptying my magazine as quick as I could fire, and on the further flank we heard the continuous cracking of our companions' rifles. Then in a moment came the panic and the collapse. Screaming and howling, the great creatures rushed away in all directions through the brushwood, while our allies yelled in their savage delight, like angel delight, only savage delight, different flavours, following swiftly after their flying enemies. All the feuds of countless generations, all the hatreds and cruelties of their narrow history, all the memories of ill-usage and persecution were to be purged that day. At last man was to be supreme, and the man-beast to find forever his allotted place. Fly as they would, the fugitives were too slow to escape from the active savages, and from every side in the tangled woods we heard the exultant yells, the twanging of bows and the crash and thud, as eight men were brought down from their hiding places in the trees. I was following the others when I found that Lord John and Challenger had come across to join us, "'It's over,' said Lord John. "'I think we can leave the tidying up to them.' "'Ah, yes, the tidying up. Leave it to them. "'It's always the way. "'There's washing up in the kitchen uh, to do. "'The glasses need to be put back into the armoire "'and various display cabinets. "'But, oh, no, I'm going upstairs to lie down. "'The, uh, the savage red men can deal with the uh, clearing up. "'Perhaps the less we see of it, the better we shall sleep.' Challenger's eyes were shining with the lust of slaughter. What a beautiful Edwardian emotion that is. Yes, I was up on the moors, brought down fifty uh, wood pigeon, gamecock, ptarmigan, grice. Grice? We have been privileged, he cried, strutting about like a gamecock, to be present at one of the typical decisive battles of history, the battles which have determined the fate of the world. What, my friends, is the conquest of one nation by another? It is meaningless. It produces, each produces the same result. But those fierce fights when in the dawn of the ages the cave dwellers held their own against the tiger folk or the elephants first found that they had a master, those were the real conquests, the victories that count. By this strange turn of fate, we have seen and helped to decide even such a conquest. 
Now upon this plateau the future must ever be for man. A bit of a sip of coffee there after that stirring. A stirring speech. It needed a robust faith in the end to justify such tragic means. As we advanced together through the woods, we found the ape-men lying thick, transfixed with spears or arrows. Here and there a little group of shattered Indians, marked where one of the anthropoids had turned to bay and sold his life dearly. Always in front of us we heard the yelling and roaring which showed the direction of the pursuit. The ape-men had been driven back to their city. They had made a last stand there. Once again they had been broken, and now we were in time to see the final, fearful scene of all. Okay, we know what's going to happen, don't we? Some eighty or a hundred males, the last survivors, had been driven across that same little clearing which led to the edge of the cliff, the scene of our own exploit two days before. As we arrived, the Indians, a semicircle of spearmen, had closed in on them, and in a minute it was over. Thirty or forty died where they stood. The others, screaming and clawing, were thrust over the precipice and went hurling down, hurtling down, in fact, as their prisoners had of old, onto the sharp bamboos six hundred feet below. The old bamboo, the old bamboo. It was, as Challenger had said, and the reign of man was assured forever in Oak Furniture Village, or Maple Whiteland, as it was formerly known. The males were exterminated, Ape Town was destroyed, the females and young were driven away to live in bondage, and the long rivalry of untold centuries had reached its bloody end. For us, the victory brought much advantage. Once again, we were able to visit our camp and get at our stores. Once more, also, we were able to communicate with Zambo, who had been terrified by the spectacle from afar of an avalanche of apes falling from the edge of the cliff. "'Come away, massas, come away!' he cried, his eyes starting from his head. "'The devil get you sure if you stay up there!' Something of the... Stephen, um, uh, whatever his name is, spiritual. Masses in the cold, cold ground. Stephen, um, it's gone, don't know. It is the voice of sanity, said Summerley with conviction. We have had adventures enough, and they are neither suitable to our character or our position. I hold you to your word, challenger. From now onwards... You devote your energies to getting us out of this horrible country and back once more to civilization, where I will put my smalls through a boil wash. It doesn't actually end with those um, final seven words. Um, but And back once more to civilization. And, uh, yeah, we all hope, we all hope and pray that, yes, truly, civilization will be reached... Zambo will get back to Manaus sub-post office and buy some more walnut whips, which he's become very partial to, if not addicted. Um, Professor Summerley can resume his sort of querulous lectures at Keyes College, wherever that is. Challenger can puff himself out like a gamecock once again to his um, 
admiring students Malone can get back to to doing, um, you know, the biggest prize marrow at the Shepton Mallet Horticultural Show rather than this dangerous area of journalism called Telling the Truth. And uh, who else is there? Well, there's uh, Roxton, Lord Roxton. He can get back to lounging about in the Albany in his pink peignoir and, um, you know, dancing the dance of the Seven Veils for his chums back in the Albany. And uh, there we'll leave it, I think. I'm, I've got my coffee. I've uh, got to wrestle out this extractor fan made by Expeller or Expeller or Expeller. I think it's made by Expeller. And we'll stick something cheap in, in its stead, so that all the... The noxious perfumes of Araby can be extracted or introduced into our fetid bathroom once again. And, uh, yeah, and on that um, peculiar note, I will uh, say au revoir, adieu. Rem remember, <coughs> remember, we are also available on YouTube and we are also available on all your favourite um, web podcast um, platforms such as Apple, iTunes, uh, Spotify, um, Podcast Republic, um, Podcast Village, Maple White Podcast Land. It's all there. You have but to look for it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't be there. Ba 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 ba. Goodbye. <laughs>